Seated. I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 35. We've been teaching a series on prosperity. I think we're going to finish it this morning, but we'll see for sure. And one of the text scriptures we've used throughout this series is in Psalm 35, verse 27. It says, Let them shout for joy and be glad that favor my righteous cause. Yea, let them say continually, Let the Lord be magnified, which has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things about this. First of all, God has a righteous cause. Let them be glad. Let them shout for joy and be glad that favor my righteous cause. Now, the next thing he's going to say is part of God's righteous uh, cause. Yea, let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified, which has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. Is prosperity the only thing that's part of God's righteous cause? Well, since it's not the only thing that's part of God's righteous cause, does it take away from the fact that it is part of his righteous cause? Notice what else he connects there. He talks about the words of our mouth. Let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified, which has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. So there are two things, at least two things in this verse that prosperity is connected with. One is righteousness. His righteous cause would be righteousness, wouldn't it? That's what Jesus came to restore to mankind. And the second thing he makes mention of is faith. The Bible defines and identifies faith as believing in your heart and saying with your mouth. So he identifies faith as a part of his the prosperity that's included in his righteous cause. That has to be right, doesn't it? There's a, well, there's a precaution that I've taken during this series and that I think we always need to keep our eyes on, and that is the Bible tells us not to pursue riches. It tells us to pursue righteousness. Well, that doesn't mean riches are against God's will. Doesn't mean that God doesn't want us to prosper. He just doesn't want our heart first and foremost in material or financial things. Jesus made this clear when he told us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, talking about the needs of this life, food and clothing and so forth. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to us. So God doesn't want us to pursue things. He doesn't want us to pursue prosperity. He wants us to pursue righteousness. But right on the other hand, a lot of people will get religious on you at this point and say, yeah, well, we don't care anything about this world's goods. We just want to pursue and seek after God's righteousness. Well, folks, if you don't want any of this world's goods, let me have them. (laughs) I'll use them well. I think the devil has run a game on the church for a long, long time. And it can sound so spiritual to put the spiritual things of God's plan of redemption first and foremost and ignore the other things that he provided for us as well. 
Now, there's no scripture in all the Bible that identifies or, or summarizes God's righteous cause more than Isaiah 53, verse 5. It tells us what Jesus died for. We know that the Bible clearly says that he was made to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Well, how are we made the righteousness of God in him if not by his sacrifice, the shedding of his blood? Well, Isaiah 53, 5, as I said, is a summary of what he shed his blood for. It says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Now, the Bible identifies or delineates between iniquities and transgressions. That just simply means Jesus died for Adam's original sin, and he died for your sins, and your personal sins and mine. That's why sin is identified in that verse twice. See, if he, only, if he only died, if Jesus only died for one of the two, we'd still be in a mess. If he died for Adam's original sin, we'd still be responsible for bringing spiritual death onto ourselves because of our own sinful nature and our own sinful history. And if Jesus died for our personal sins, but not Adam's original sin, then the law of sin and death that came into being at the point of the original sin in the Garden of Eden that would never be broken. So he had to pay sins, personal and original, for us to be redeemed from sin in every form. So it says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. That word peace is the word shalom. It's the same word used here in Psalm 35, verse 27. The word that's translated prosperity. So the chastisement of the punishment of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we were healed. So the Bible identifies God's righteous cause or the reason that Jesus shed his blood is to free us from sin, personal and original, sickness, and poverty. And the Bible identifies very clearly that those are the three things that are a part of the curse of the law. Galatians 3.13 says Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. What, what is the curse of the law? The Bible clearly identifies that is spiritual death, sickness, and poverty. So God's righteous cause is those three things that Jesus died for. So we could say, using the summary of Isaiah 53, 5, we could say, let them shout for joy and be glad that favor is righteous cause. Yea, let them be, say continually, let the Lord be magnified, which has pleasure in the righteousness of his people. Or we could say, let them shout for joy and be glad that favor is righteous cause. Yea, let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified, which has pleasure in the healing of his people. Those are all part of what the Bible identifies as God's righteous cause. Now, the place where the Bible identifies God's will and God's intent regarding material possessions and, and prosperity is in the book of Hebrews. Now, the book of Hebrews, I'm sorry, the book of Deuteronomy is what I'm trying to say, which was written for the Hebrews, the Jews. The book of Deuteronomy is Moses' farewell address to the people. He messed up one of God's types in the Old Testament. You remember they came, the children of Israel came to a place on two separate occasions where there was no water. And Moses was commanded by God to stand before the people 
and take the rod that was in his hand and strike the, the rock. Well, he did, and the Bible tells us about the, the fountains that came forth from the earth and watered the millions of people that made up the Jewish nation as well as watered their animals and, and so forth. It was a massive amount of water. It wasn't just a little stream that everybody went to drink from. It was something that kept them for almost a two-year period of time. Well, the next time they came around to another situation where there was no water, God told Moses to do the same thing, only this time don't hit the rock, speak to the rock. But the people were murmuring against God and against Moses, and he got upset about it, lost his temper, and struck the rock the second time. Now, folks, the Bible identifies that the rock that provided living water was a type of Jesus. So the first time when he was stricken or smitten or when Moses struck the rock with the rod, that fulfilled the type of Jesus being smitten and stricken on the cross, where he took upon himself as our substitute sin, sickness, and poverty. But the second time when Moses was supposed to speak to the rock instead of striking it was a type of how we take advantage of the blessings of God, which are typified or identified, symbolized by the water that came from the rock, not by Jesus being stricken again the second time, not by Jesus having to go back to the cross for any reason whatsoever, but instead it was to symbolize and illustrate the operation of faith where we believe in our heart and speak or say with our mouths. But Moses messed that up. And so Moses wasn't allowed to go into the promised land. So Joshua was going to take his place. So the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' farewell address to the people. And the book of Deuteronomy says more about God's plan for their material well-being than any other place in the Bible. There are three separate chapters in the book of Deuteronomy that identify and, and focus on, major on, the prosperity that God has planned for his people. Now, some people, again, will just say, well, that was for the Jews. That was just an Old Testament promise and blessing for the Jews. But again, in Galatians chapter 3, which we just quoted a moment ago, verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Verse 14 tells us why. Here's why Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. So if we say that this is just for the Jews, that would be saying it's part of Abraham's blessing. And the Bible identifies that Abraham's blessing belongs to us. Further in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, it says, And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. Well, that's what these promises would be. This would make up part of those promises. Now turn with me over to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8, Deuteronomy chapter 11, and Deuteronomy chapter 28 are the three places where God identifies his will and his plan and his purpose concerning the prosperity of his people, more so than any other locations. We're not going to read all of them. We have taken the time to do so in many of the previous sermons in this series. But let's just read Deuteronomy chapter 8, 
Beginning in verse 1, it says, All the commandments which I command thee this day shall you observe to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in your heart, whether thou would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know that he might make thee know that man does not live by bread alone or only, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord does man live. You remember what the manna was like. The manna would be new every morning, and they were commanded to take one day's worth, but no more. If they took more than just one day's worth, at the end of that day it would be rotted and and worm-infested and a seriously gross thing. The only exception to that was on the Sabbath. The day before the Sabbath, they'd gather two days' worth. Now, what was this intended to, to identify for them? Well, it was to show them that God will meet your needs day by day by day. And, folks, that's a, a tremendously important thing for us to remember and learn. Jesus said it this way when he taught the disciples to pray or gave them a, an example of prayer. He said, give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Well, as I said before, Jesus emphasized when it came to financial and material things, possessions, Jesus magnified the heart, the condition of the heart more than he did the things. He told us to do the same thing. Not to seek after things, but to seek after the giver of things. The Bible went on, Jesus went on to say, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. He warned against letting money or material things or possessions take an inappropriate position in your life. Don't let money get become first in your life. Keep God first. So he goes on to say, that when they were in the wilderness, the raiment waxed not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these forty years. Thou shalt also consider in thy heart, as a man chasteneth his son, the Lord thy God chasteneth thee. The word chasten does not mean punish. It means to instruct. Therefore thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks of waters, of fountains and depths that spring out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land wherein thou mayest eat bread without scarceness, thou shalt not lack anything in it, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass. When thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he has given thee. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes, which I command thee this day. Lest when thou hast eaten and are full, and hast built goodly houses and dwell therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all that thou hast is multiplied. God doesn't seem to have a problem with you having a lot. Then thy heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage 
who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of Flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee and that he might prove thee to do thee good in thy latter end. Folks, please understand that the times that we are seemingly without or just barely scraping by, when we learn that God will take care of us and provide for us our daily bread, that brings us to good at our latter end. One of the things, we'll come back and finish this in just a moment. One of the things that I think is so important in understanding God's will for your financial well-being is to look back at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God made a promise to Abraham. Abraham said, I'll follow you, Lord. God took him down to Egypt during the time of famine, and he brought him back and he was as a very rich man in silver and cattle and gold. Isaac was the, in, the heir of Abraham's possessions, and so we really don't have too much information about Isaac other than God led him to stay where he was in the time of famine rather than what he did with Abraham and take him down to Egypt. And so Isaac sowed in the famine where the famine was and received a hundredfold in that same year. So God overcame the famine for Isaac when Abraham left the place where the famine was. See, God may have a different way for you than he has for me, but he's always got a way for us. And it's important for us to find out what the way is so we can cooperate with him. Wouldn't make sense for Isaac to do the same thing that Abraham did, expecting God to bless him when God had given him different instructions. Well, next in line was Jacob. And Jacob, you remember, deceived his father to get the, the firstborn blessing. And because he, what he did was, well, what was it? It wasn't a matter of legality, but it certainly wasn't a moral thing for him to do. He wound up having to leave all the inheritance of his father, Isaac, and go to a strange land because of how he had wronged his brother. Now, while he was there, he was down there for 20 years, the Bible says. And while he was there, he was taken advantage of and deceived by his father-in-law time after time after time. He identified that his father-in-law had changed his wages 10 separate times to put him at a disadvantage. And so when he started making plans to leave with his family and go back to the land that, uh, uh, that Abraham and Isaac lived in, his father-in-law asked him what should he, his wages be. And in Genesis chapter 30, I think it's verse 25, Isaac answers and says, I don't want you to give me anything. He says, he comes up with a plan, and he says, here's how I want to be paid. He says, he'll take all the, the spotted cattle or the flocks, the sheep in the flocks, those that look poor or not as good, not as strong as the others. And he said this, he said, the ones that are, that are born that are spotted or, or ring-straked, I'm not sure what that means, but it seems to be some kind of blemish or the appearance of a blemish. He said this. He said, all those that are born that seem to be second rate, I'll take those. But here's why he said it that, that way. 
He says, so that my righteousness shall show forth in the days to come. In other words, he came to the place where he's trusting God to make him whole. He's trusting God to bring him material possessions and prosperity. Now, that's what he tried to steal from his brother, and he did. He successfully stole that from his brother. But it didn't do him any good because he had to flee the land because he was afraid of being killed by his brother. But he learned in his own generation that God stands up for the ones that are weak. God makes a way when it would seem that there was no way. In fact, it was such a, a, a turnaround that his father-in-law's sons wanted to do away with Jacob because he had spoiled all the, the uh, as they said, he had spoiled the possessions of the, their father. So God came through for him as well. Every generation needs to learn to trust God on their own. Now that's tough to do when you're prospering. I think that may have something to do with why we don't have much information about Isaac. How is Isaac supposed to learn to trust God when everything Abraham has is given to him of God and it belongs to him? We have a tendency to recoil from tough places or even the idea of being in a tough place. And we certainly want our kids to have everything that we have and even better than we had it. But I'm not sure we do our children a service, but rather maybe a disservice by trying to make things easy for them. Because there's nothing like finding God to be faithful in a hard place that equips you for whatever's coming down the road. So there's got to be a balance there some way for us. Now, if your kids are anything like my kids, they want to help me find the balance. <laughs> and it always seems that they're wind up with possessions that I gain through my faith rather than what they gain for themselves. But that's exactly what God is saying in Deuteronomy chapter 8 to the children of Israel. I proved you. I gave you just enough to get by on so that you would understand who I am and what I will do for you. And here their reward is staring in the face. The promised land is their reward. Well, let's go back and finish reading here. He's giving them the warning. He says, beware that you don't forget God. Verse 17, and, and say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers, as it is this day. That verse 18 is so chock full of stuff, it's hard to, to cover it all. First and foremost, notice that he says wealth is a part of his covenant. Well, Hebrews 8, 6 says we have a better covenant established on better promises. Now, if God had set up his plan of redemption to work this way so that as soon as any of us get saved, we immediately are translated into heaven. If that were the case, if that's what God's plan of redemption was like or how it worked, then we could certainly say we have a better covenant that's purely spiritual. But since God leaves us here on the earth, 
after we're born again, after we're made new creatures in Christ Jesus, then the part of the covenant that includes well-being, wealth, material possessions and goods, silver and cattle and gold, God would be unjust to take that part out of the covenant. And again, people will say, well, yeah, but that was just for the Jews. No, it wasn't. It was under their fathers. Did you see that part? Thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers. Who are the fathers he's talking about? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, we've already seen in Galatians 3 twice now, Christ was, has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Curses is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that or so that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. How can this possibly not be the blessing of Abraham? If anything is included in the blessing of Abraham, it's the power to get wealth. It's the first result we see of his covenant, God's covenant with Abraham, when Abraham obeyed him. He became very rich in silver and cattle and gold. If we're Christ, then we're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Well, this is the promise. It's not all of the promise, but it's certainly a good part of it. Then when he says, as it is this day, he's telling them the promise is just as good, just as real, and just as effective in their day as it was in Abraham's day. Well, if it's just as effective in their day as it was in Abraham's day, it's just as effective in our day than it was in Abraham's day. Now, folks, what is the power to get wealth? The power to get wealth, the word power, is the word force. The word wealth is the word resources. So here where it says that God has given us the power to get wealth, the spiritual force that makes resources available to us is the force of faith. It's the only way that the Bible ever identifies that we can receive from God. So it's not some spooky, supernatural ability to pick stocks. I think a lot of people are looking for some kind of physical thing to satisfy or to qualify as the power to get wealth. But the power to get wealth is simply the spiritual force of faith to believe for and to receive in every respect what Jesus died for us to have. Now what we've also looked at Malachi chapter 3. Turn with me to Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. The Bible gives us an example, many examples as a matter of fact, but it gives us an example of how that the children of Israel did forget God. They turned away from Him. And because of their disobedience, they, were, they had to do without a lot of the blessings that God had intended for them to have in the promised land. They were speaking against God. God said it this way in one of the verses in Malachi chapter 3, your words have been stout against me. In other words, they've spoken strongly against what God said. Now remember this goes back to the force of faith or the operation of faith that we saw in, in uh, 
Psalm 35, verse 27. Let them shout for joy and be glad that favor my righteous cause. Yea, let them say continually. Here's the operation of faith. Let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified, which has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. Well, they're not saying anything about God delighting in their prosperity. They're talking about how it doesn't pay to serve God. And folks, remember the rule of faith that goes back even before faith was identified. God said to Moses to tell the people, as you have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto you. Well, if the children of Israel are speaking curses instead of blessings, they're going to have curses in their life. If they're saying it doesn't serve God, it doesn't pay to serve God, then it won't pay for them to serve God. So here's the fix for the curse they're in. Verse 10. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you unto you the windows of heaven, and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast your fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. And all nations shall call you blessed, for you shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. So he's telling them to fix, to get out of the curse they're in, and to take hold of God's abundance, is to tithe. Bring the tenth of their increase under the storehouse. Now, notice God's storehouse is the church. That means you as an individual, because the, the presence of God lives on the inside of you, because Jesus has been made your Lord and Savior. You are the church. But then collectively, we're all the church together, too. So God calls his storehouse the church. So he says the tithe is the fix for their problem. Well, it takes discipline to tithe. And it's not easy for anybody starting out. And I think a lot of us have made excuses over, the, over our lifetime or at different places in our lives. But we can't do away with the fact that the Bible says this is the fix. That's confirmed also in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your substance and with the first fruits of your increase. That's the tithe. So shall your barns be filled with plenty and your presses break, break forth with new wine. So since the power to get wealth is the force of faith, he's telling us to act on the word by bringing the tent, the tithe, and mix faith with it by saying the right things, by saying the windows of heaven are open unto us, by saying that he's pouring out a blessing upon us that there's not room enough to receive. And folks, as I've said hundreds of times and will continue to say, that has to be something more than just money. Numbers are infinite. We could never get to a place where we run out of numbers to accumulate. We're never going to get to the place where the bank calls us and says, I'm sorry, we can't take any more money in your account. So the blessing that there's not room enough to receive has to be something more than just a material blessing. 
Has to be. But having said all that, one of the main reasons that I was prompted by the Holy Ghost to teach this subject has to do with the time that we are in. It has to do with the time that we're in. Folks, the Bible says when Paul talked about, uh, when Paul wrote to the church 2,000 years ago, he talked about those days being the last days. Well, if it was the last days 2,000 years ago, how much further are we into the last days now? How much closer are we to Jesus' return than they were in, at that point in time? And the Bible says some very interesting things about the last days. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 tells us that when Jesus was questioned by his disciples about his return, him coming back for the church. Verse 1, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and asked him, When shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of your coming and of the end of the world? They've asked three different questions. When shall these things be? We know the answer to that question. That was in 70 A.D., when the Romans came and destroyed the temple, destroyed it for the last time once and for all, and because the temple had been built with gold dust making up part of the mortar between the, the blocks or the stones, the Romans dismantled the thing, didn't leave one stone upon another to get the gold dust that was in the mortar. So they said, when shall these things be? What shall be the sign of your coming and of the end of the world? When Jesus comes back for the church, that's his coming. But the world doesn't end for over a thousand years later. Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. Folks, I want you to understand the first evidence, the first proof that he gives about the end and about his return is deception. He said, take heed that no man deceive you. Take heed that no man deceive you. Folks, look at all the deception that's taking place in the world around us. Now, people have always been deceptive. People have always cheated and stolen and stuff like that. That's not new. But look at how it's being done on a, <laughs> on a, a worldwide degree to a worldwide degree one of the things that's being lied about right now is this coronavirus thing you know how many people have died from coronavirus about 3,060 3,000 of those have been in China do you know how many people normally die each year from the flu almost a half a million that's worldwide. So how is it that the coronavirus is going to kill the world? It's not even considered to be a, a serious disease in comparison to some of the others. 
the fatality rate of the coronavirus is 2.3%. Now, you may remember eight or ten years ago when the SARS virus was the big talk. Well, that had a fatality rate of 9.3%. The mirrors, you remember that? Middle East respiratory flu or virus. That had a, more, had a fatality rate of 34%. So it was big time. It was a bad thing. But if you dig down even into the numbers of the coronavirus, you'll find that people that were making up the most of the fatalities were the ones that were either old or had immune deficiencies, immune system deficiencies on their own. Take that out, and it's negligible. Well, it makes sense that the people that are the weakest in society are going to succumb the most or the most often to any sickness or any disease. Well, why are things being talked about the way they are? Folks, I firmly believe that in these last days, the most important thing for us to do is to be able to identify the truth from a lie. And I wish it weren't so, but it's absolutely true that the mainstream media are the propagators of the lies. But what are they doing? because of some other agenda that they have, they're ginning up concern, unreasonable concern, about something that really shouldn't be much of a problem at all. I've said this before, but I think it bears repeating. When President Trump was elected three and a half years ago now, or almost, we lost people from our church. There were people. Now, we may have lost people over politics before, but I never knew about it. But with President Trump's election, there were people that we lost from the church specifically because they were against Trump. Now, folks, there are a lot of things about Trump that I wish he would do differently. I wish he would say some things differently than what he says. I wish he would act in certain ways that don't seem to be the way that he does. But the guy's done a great job for the country Amen. under impossible odds. And one thing I've come to accept is that I'm willing to give him a pass on the things that I wish he would do differently just simply because he doesn't give up in the fight. What other individual would not have given up facing the same things that he's faced? I look on the political landscape and I can't see anybody. Now you may wonder what this has to do with the subject that we're talking about this morning. Deception is going to do nothing more but increase more and more and more. We have to be able to identify the truth from a lie. Jesus goes on to say, he says, take heed that no man deceive you. 
For many shall come in my name saying I am Christ and shall deceive many. Folks, there are a lot of people that are being deceived into supporting the devil's work because the people that are doing the devil's work say they're on God's side. It's a form of deception. Many shall come in my name saying I am Christ and shall deceive many and you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled for all these things must come to pass but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrow. I tell you, one of the things we better keep our eyes on is this invasion of locusts over in Africa. Because anytime anything like that has happened throughout history, it always brings tremendous famine. Now, the Bible talks about pestilences. Those are plagues. There may really seriously be some earth-shattering plagues and sicknesses and diseases that come down the road. But this coronavirus isn't one of them. Thank God the Bible says in Psalm 91, no plague shall come near your dwelling. But I tell you something that's even more important in my thinking than these things. And that is the prophecies that are being fulfilled that are not being told. Are you aware that in Ezekiel chapter 47, there's a prophecy that Ezekiel gave that said the Dead Sea would come back to life? Do you realize that over the last, it's been about 16 months ago now, maybe not quite that much, but close. They found fresh water coming back into the Dead Sea. And I don't know if you're familiar with the area much at all. But in the northern part of the Dead Sea, the northern boundary of the Dead Sea, there are all kinds of sinkholes and different things like that. They found fresh fish. Uh, they found fr fish in the fresh water in these sinkholes. And there's more and more and more fresh water coming into the Dead Sea every day, every week, and every month. The salt content of the Dead Sea is dropping. Now, I assume that you know this, but it may be worthwhile speaking of for just a moment. The Dead Sea was created by the destruction that came on Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah were located right close to where the Dead Sea is. As a matter of fact, at the foot of the mountain that Masada is built on, if you know anything about that part of the, the world. They can still find, they've dug up and can still find the hailstone that's encapsulated with rock that brought destruction on that whole region. But it's coming back. So when we see things like that, that makes me think, first and foremost, end times. End time stuff. And the Bible has some things to say about money in the end times. Turn with me to Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, so we know it's prophecy. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. 
God's saying he's going to shake everything that can be shaken. Now, is this talking literal shaking? Is this talking about earthquakes? Well, earthquakes are one of the signs of the end, so it certainly could be that. But I believe it goes even further. If it was just earthquakes, it would have been a lot simpler way for God to say it than the way that he just did. I think he's going to shake societies. I think he's going to shake governments. I believe he's going to shake everything that can be shaken. Everything that people, mankind puts their trust in, don't expect it to stand. So he says, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. The desire of all nations is a reference to what Paul talked about, how that the earth is groaning and travailing until the sons of God are manifest. The desire of all nations, he's not talking about the desire of the people of the nations because they don't care anything about the things of God. But the desire of all nations he's talking about is the appearing of the sons of God, the church at the end of time, and or Jesus himself. So he says, I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. Folks, why in the world would Haggai, by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, connect silver and gold with the prophecy of Jesus coming back? I mean, that's pretty far afield from the subject he's been describing uh, so far. There has to be a connection with Jesus' return in the silver and gold of the world. There has to be a connection between material prosperity, financial prosperity, and Jesus' return. I wish I was smart enough to know what all that connection was. But I'm at least smart enough to realize there has to be a connection. He says, I'll fill this house with glory. Saith the Lord of hosts, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house. Well, now we know what he's talking about at the end. He's talking about the church at the end. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Now the implication there on that last phrase, in this place I'll give peace. The implication is that the rest of the world will be in turmoil, but not the church. For that to be true, and thank God it is, thank God that's the way it will be. But in order for that to be true, the, earth, the church is going to have to be the ones who aren't deceived. We're going to have to know who to listen to. We're going to have to walk in the word to such a degree that whatever comes down, whatever is claimed, whether real or fake, that we judge that against what the word says. It's going to take a renewed mind on the part of each and every one of us. Yet the Bible says that there will be such a deception in the last days that even some of the elect will be deceived. So it's not enough to say we're just trusting God for the truth. We're going to have to be active, diligent about maintaining the truth in our lives.
But again, the question stands, why did he connect silver and gold with it? Turn with me to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Go to now, you rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped together treasure for the last days. Now where he talks about the corrupted riches and um, cankered and rust, that's talking about finances, wealth, riches that had been laid up instead of being used. So when he addresses this to the rich men, he's got to be talking about the, the rich and those that are represented by the rich throughout Scripture, specifically those that are outside the kingdom of God. And here it says you've heaped treasure together for the last days. Now, there's two ways you can look at that. You can either look at that as they've heaped together treasure for their last days or they've heaped together treasure that God will use in the last days. I personally think it's a combination of both. People that are walking contrary to the ways of God and have heaped together treasure for their last days. Why would the Bible be telling us about it if God wasn't going to do something in that respect? Let's start again. Go to now, you rich men. Weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat of your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped together treasure for the last days. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived in pleasure on the earth and have been wanton. You have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed the just, and he does not resist you. Verse 7, here's the context of the things that he said. Be therefore patient, brethren, under the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husband waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and has long patience for it until he receive the early and the latter rain. So the first six verses of chapter 5 of James are talking about the condition of the world prior to the return of Jesus. And notice the complaint that the Holy Ghost is lodging against the rich and those that are represented by the rich. He says, you haven't paid the ones that did the work for you. You've cheated and withheld. Now, what are the laborers that God is concerned with? Well, is, is God judging them because of how the wicked dealt with others that were wicked? Does God really get involved in that? But if the laborers are his people, if the laborers are those who have done right 
and obeyed his command. And resources have been withheld from them. That sounds like the kind of thing God would get involved in, doesn't it? See, these scriptures don't make any sense any other way. And James is adamant in the way that he speaks to them and the accusations he makes against those that are identified by the rich. Now, I'll remind you also that Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22 says that a good man shall leave an inheritance to his children's children and the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the just. Well, if the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the just, when are the just going to take hold of it? It's got to be before Jesus comes back. Because once Jesus comes back for the church, the church is caught up into heaven. I don't know about you, but I'm not going to give a hoot about what's going on on the earth after that. So it's got to be before Jesus comes back for the church. Now, what's God going to do? I don't know. Well, what do we know? We know he's given us the power to get wealth. That he may establish his covenant. Which he swore unto our forefathers. That works today just like it did in their day. So I want to be real careful that I don't leave the impression with anybody that money or riches or wealth should be our goal. To be perfectly honest with you, once our needs are met, what do we need money for after that at all? If not for to help somebody else. And that was a part of what God promised Abraham when he first appeared to him. He said, I'll bless you and make you a blessing. So folks, I've got to tell you, here's my own personal position. You judge it for yourself and you decide what your position is too. My position is very simply this. I want all the money in the world so that I can do good with it. I don't need all the money in the world to have a better car. I don't need all the money in the world to have a bigger house. Nothing wrong with either one of those things. And I may wind up with that too. But I sure do want to be able to do a lot more for the kingdom of God. I sure want to be involved with God in every respect and in every way to get at least one more person into the kingdom of heaven. Lord spoke to my heart many years ago, just out of the blue, I wasn't meditating on these things or studying on, on anything related to this whatsoever. But out of the blue, the Lord told me, prosperity without a purpose is greed. Well, I've got a purpose. So any prosperity, mega prosperity, isn't greed for me. It's just a means whereby I can do more to help others. And folks, if that's not seeking after God's righteousness, then what is? Where do we start? We start with the tithe. Where do we go from there? We go to wherever God directs us. 
God will challenge you with money. He'll challenge you about money. He's not trying to take money from you. He's trying to establish another clear vessel that he can use money for his purposes. You have a choice whether or not you'll be that. I've chosen that that's the way I want to live. So I'm expecting spectacular increase in these last days. I'm not trying to get Bill Gates money. I'm not trying to take anybody, any rich person's money from them. Because my attitude is much the same as Jacob developed and that Abraham identified. I don't want anything from you because I don't want you to think that you've made me rich. I'm well satisfied to work at God's way and to let him prosper me. But the Bible says in Romans 14, verse 23, the last verse of Romans, Paul says anything that is not of faith is sin. So that means there has to be a way, there has to be a place where we can operate in faith in every respect concerning God's righteous cause. Where sin is concerned, where sickness is concerned, where poverty is concerned. There's got to be a place for each of us to live by faith in that regard, in regard to our finances and our possessions. Well, we've got an example of that with the rich young ruler. He was rich. Jesus loved him, and Jesus loved him while he was rich. And he told him how to have treasure in heaven. He said, sell what you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Unfortunately, the rich young ruler cared more about his money than he did treasure in heaven. I'm not going to let that happen to me. How about you? Folks, we are in the last days. And just as there are signs in the heavens, there will be signs in the earth. And some of those signs in the earth will have to do with you and me and the things that we're believing God for. If God won't use his people to show the world what it's like to have him living on the inside of us, then what good is anything else he might show? I hope you hear my heart in these things, folks. Because you can't find anybody on the earth that cares less about money than I do. But I expect to have a boatload of it. Because of what the Bible says and what I've been impressed to believe for. So that we can use it for others' benefit. To bring blessing to other people. To bring people into the kingdom of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he's redeemed us from the curse. He's broken the law of sin and death over us. And we've come into eternal life. And because we have accepted him and have made you our heavenly father, we thank you that healing is ours. And we thank you that prosperity is ours. 
Lord, we invite you to challenge us where money is concerned. We invite you to put us to the test so that you may know our willingness to be faithful, to obey your word, and to follow your leading. Father, we thank you that the glory of this latter house, the last day church, will be greater than anything the world's ever seen. We thank you, Father, that Jesus is waiting to bring about the precious fruit of the earth. Show us our part in that, Lord, that we may cooperate with you. Now, Father, I know that there are people in this church, in this congregation, that have struggled with the tithe. But I pray that by the Holy Ghost, they would be prompted to enter into the first and foremost step of showing you and showing themselves that they care more about you than they do money. Father, we pray that for everybody that calls this church their home. That we may be clean and clear vessels to be used of you. Give us direction, Father. Show us what you would have us to do. We'll do it. We'll obey you. And trust you to make it good. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Hallelujah. I believe God's got some good things ahead for us. Hallelujah. Well, I know that uh, we're going to have a time of prayer for just a few minutes after this service concludes, or now that this service has concluded. So if you want to